is in the promise of the king's coming. Our hope is in the promise of the king's coming. To understand what verse 1 is all about, we have to remember God's covenant with King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God sent the prophet Nathan to King David with a message. At the end of David's life, at the end of his royal reign, that would not be the end of David's royal dynasty. The house of David would go on. God promised that long after David's bones were reduced to dust, one of his own descendants would be king and rule over the people of God. Not just for a time, but forever. This promised king is referred to as the Messiah or Christ. But verse 1, there's a picture in this text of the king of the kingly line of David, like a tree that has been cut down. The nation of Judah would come to the place that it ceased to exist because of their sin against God. And that means there would be no descendant of David on the throne. Judah wouldn't even be a nation anymore. So what does that mean for the promise of God? God promised there would be a king from the line of David rule forever. How's that going to happen if there's not even a kingdom for David's descendant to rule over? The time would come when all signs of life from the Davidic monarchy had disappeared. The tree that is the house of David would be cut down. All that is left is the stump. What verse 1 is telling us is there's life in the stump. God's promise has not failed. Look at verse 1. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. A shoot, a branch. These both refer to new growth. He refers to the house of Jesse, like a stump. Remember, Jesse was David's father. So when he says a shoot will come from Jesse, what he's saying is David's family line will continue. Even when there's no descendant of David ruling over the throne of Judah, David's family line survived. And from that line will come a promised king. That's the promise in verse one. You, you see, he tells us who this king is back in Isaiah chapter 9, just two chapters back in verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. This is the message. The nation would go into exile for abandoning God, but God's true people still had a reason to hope because God was still going to keep his promise to David. He was going to send them a king. 
But who is this king Isaiah is describing? Who is he? He's Jesus. You see, this, this promise in this chapter in Isaiah isn't just a promise for God's people of Isaiah's day. This is a promise for God's people today. This king he promised them would come is the king you and I are looking forward to coming again. The king is coming. Now when he came the first time, he came to die. But he's coming again, and the next time he comes, he's not coming to die. He's coming to reign. That's our promise from God. Matthew 25, 31 to 34. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen, no matter how far away from God this government drifts, no matter how far, no matter how severe the consequences may be, our hope remains because our king is coming. That's a promise from the God who cannot lie. In 2021, Angela and I bought a new Hyundai Santa Fe. Seven months later, we came to the decision that we wanted to be completely out of debt. So we decided we would sell the vehicle and pay it off. At the time, all of the car dealerships were advertising they wanted to buy cars. So I took our new Hyundai Santa Fe to the local Kia dealership in Tupelo, where we were living at the time. And uh, now I've bought new cars several times over the years, and I know how much a new car depreciates the moment you drive it off the lot. I had no hopes that they would actually give me what I owed on it. I just hoped it might not be too far off so I could try to pay it off. Now, I, I broke the car. They looked it over and drove it, and they brought me a piece of paper with a number on it, and I was right. They didn't offer me what I owed on the car they offered me $1,500 more than I owed on the car. I was stunned. I would have never believed it. You know the only reason I believed it? I had it in writing. He, he gave me a document with a typed, documented, signed offer. Listen to what I'm telling you. Jesus is coming back to reign as king. We don't just have a promise from God. We got it in writing. Are you listening to me? Listen, my hope does not rest on the chance that America will repent and return to God. No, 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 no. My hope does not rest on the chance that God will spare America the judgment she deserves. The mercy of God may not come to this nation. But my hope remains unshaken. Because even if mercy doesn't come, Jesus is coming. Amen. Jesus is coming. 
The king is coming. Listen, that's a promise from God and that's where our hope lies. But that's not all. I want you to notice this with me in verse 2. Our hope is in the character of the king's person. Our hope is in the character of the king's person. It's not just the fact that the king is coming that gives us hope. It's who this king is that gives us hope. Verse 2 begins with a general statement. And then he, he elaborates on it in the rest of the verse. The general statement is this. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of God. The spirit of God himself will indwell this king who's coming. As a result of being indwelt by the very Spirit of God, this king will possess certain qualities. Those qualities are listed in verse 2 in three pairs of two. The first pair of qualities the king will possess is wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is the ability to make a right judgment about all things. And understanding is the capacity to see to the heart of an issue, to see what really is going on. Here's the idea. Because the Spirit of God is within this king, this king will be able to see to the heart of every issue and every concern in his kingdom, and he will always make the right decision. The second pair of qualities this king will possess is counsel and might. Counsel is the ability to devise a right course of action. And might means he has the power to accomplish his course of action. When our king comes, in other words, he will always know the right thing to do, the right course of action to take in every situation. Not only that, he will always have the power to do what he sets out to do. The third pair of qualities this king will possess is knowledge and the fear of God. Now, knowledge here refers to a knowledge of God. It refers to an intimate, personal knowledge of God. In other words, this king will live in close relationship with God. In Jesus' case, as king, he will share the closest possible relationship with the Father because he is one with the Father, John chapter 10, verse 30. And he will possess, it says here, the fear of God. That means he will be concerned with what concerns God. In everything he does, he will be sensitive to God's will. He will be absolutely loyal and obedient. What does all this mean? Basically, King Jesus will be everything that our nation's leaders are not and could never be. They are so often wrong in their judgments and fail to see to the true heart of the issues. They so often devise the wrong course of action and on the chance they do have uh, see the right course of action, they so often lack the power to actually carry it out. Their leadership fails because they don't know God. They aren't concerned with what concerns God. They lack the loyalty and obedience to God that are necessary to lead our nation rightly. But not Jesus. And keep in mind, Jesus isn't just indwelt with the Spirit of God the way you and I are. He doesn't just have the anointing of the Spirit the same way King David did. 
Listen, he shares the very same nature as God's Spirit because he is himself God. What am I saying? I'm saying God himself will rule over us in the person of his son. Listen, we have hope today no matter what happens to America because one day we will have the perfect king. A week before last, Mississippi State hired Jeff Lebby as their new head football coach. He, uh, he was previously the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma. And there's some excitement because uh, Coach Lebby has coached some really outstanding offenses which Mississippi State could use. But can you imagine what the atmosphere would be like at Mississippi State if they had hired Nick Saban? Now, whether you like Nick Saban or not, the coach at Alabama, here's what remains the truth. Nick Saban is one of, if not the best football coach college football has ever seen. His record bears it out. He's won championships everywhere he's been in college football at Division I schools. He's a great coach. Even those who don't like him can't deny that. If, Nick, if Mississippi State could just pick any coach they wanted, and if they could afford him, which they can't, they very well likely would pick Nick Saban. Can you imagine what the level of confidence and excitement might be at Mississippi State if Nick Saban was coming to be their football coach? He'd be through the roof. Why? Because he's the best. Our government has abandoned God. But we got a new king coming. And he's not just any king. He's the best. He's the best possible king. He is God himself. He will rule over his people with perfect wisdom and understanding. He will always know what's right. He will always make right decisions. He will rule with perfect counsel and power. He'll always know the best course of action. He'll always have the power to do what needs to be done. He will rule with perfect knowledge and the fear of God. In other words, the glory and honor of God will be his foremost priority in all things. Listen to me, I know it's discouraging to see the ungodliness of some of our leaders. I know it's discouraging to see them leading us down a path that will only invite the judgment of God. But in spite of that, our confidence and excitement level ought to be through the roof. Why? Because our king is coming and our king is God. He will rule with the perfect combination of infinite wisdom, infinite power, and infinite goodness. Church, that's where our hope lies. Oh, but we aren't finished yet. There's more to see in these verses. In verses 3 to 5, I want you to notice this. Our hope is in the righteous reign of the king. Or let me say it like this. Our hope is in the righteousness of the king's reign. Here's the simple idea. Because our king is God, he will reign in perfect righteousness. That's where our hope lies. Now, as we look at verses 3 to 5, we see four aspects of the righteous reign of the king. First, he will delight in righteousness Verse 3, he will delight in the fear of God. 
In other words, he will take great delight in carrying out his rule according to God's perfect will. He will find great joy in conducting all the affairs of God's kingdom in a way that brings glory and honor to God. He will delight in righteousness. Second, he will judge in righteousness. Verse 3. Look at the last part of the verse. He will not render a decision by what his ears hear, excuse me, by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. What does that mean? That means he will never make decisions based on appearances or hearsay. But he will judge, look what it says in verse 4, with righteousness and he will decide with uprightnesses. Here's the thing. Jesus will be able to see beyond what appears to be. And he won't be fooled by what people say. He'll always know what the truth really is. And he will always render decisions that are both right and fair. He will judge in righteousness. Here's the third aspect of his righteous reign. He will uphold righteousness. Look at verse 4 again. With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightnesses for the afflicted of the earth. You see, one of the problems in the courts of ancient Israel was that justice was often perverted. Decisions would be made in favor of those who had money and influence. But when Christ reigns, the poor and lowly of society will never be discriminated against. And not only that, the wicked will not get away with their wickedness. Look at the end of verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Jesus' power and authority will be so great that he will need nothing more than a word to bring the wicked to their end. I want to remind you of something Revelation 19 says about the day the Lord returns to reign. Revelation 19 verses 15 and 16. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. He has on his garment and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, when he comes, he will uphold righteousness. And here's the fourth aspect of his righteous reign. His character and commitment will be righteous. Look at verse 5. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins. Faithfulness the belt about his waist. Okay, the king's belt represents his character and what he's committed to. His character is righteous. That means he always does what is right in the sight of God. His commitment is faithfulness. That means he's 100% committed to being absolutely faithful to God. He is committed wholly to doing exactly as God directs. His character and commitment will be righteous. You and I have seen our government leaders delight in wickedness. We've seen our government leaders pervert justice. We've seen our government leaders oppose what is right and uphold what is wrong. 
We've seen government leaders whose character and commitment was anything but righteous. But when our king comes, he will reign in perfect righteousness. And that's where our hope lies. On August 8, 1974, President Richard Nixon delivered his resignation speech from the Oval Office. Corruption infiltrated the nation's executive office as Nixon was implicated in the Watergate scandal. No doubt, confidence in the president at that point in history was at a low. But can you imagine, just imagine for just a minute, what if the next president had been Billy Graham? How do you think the Christians of that day would have felt? Keep in mind how the Christian community viewed Billy Graham in those days. A man who boldly stood on the word of God. A man who in all of his life was untouched by scandal. A man whose preaching was given credibility by the life he lived. A man committed to the gospel and the glory of God. For the Christians, at least, to have such a man in the nation's highest office would be a reason for great hope. Why? Because there would be every reason to believe that he would do his best to lead in a way that would be right in the sight of God. Now, don't you miss what I'm saying? A king is coming. And he isn't Billy Graham. He's the one Billy Graham spent his life preaching about. Billy Graham was a sinner. Jesus is untouched by sin. He is perfectly righteous. Therefore, he will rule in perfect righteousness. Listen, when he comes, never again will justice be perverted. Never again will wickedness Prevail. Never again will corruption infiltrate those in power. God's perfect will shall be done in all things. And because righteousness will prevail in the land, we will live under the favor and blessing of God forever. Listen, we should pray that those in government would make right decisions and do what seeks to please God. But whether or not they do, our hope remains unchanged. Because King Jesus is coming to reign in perfect righteousness. Listen, that's where our hope lies. And it gets even, it gets even better. Notice with me in verses 6 to 9. Our hope is in the nature of the king's kingdom. Our hope is in the nature of the king's kingdom. It's the way things will be when the king comes that gives us hope. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus describes how life in the kingdom will be like, what it will be like. You'll see in verse 6, there are three pairs of animals listed, the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the young goat, the calf and the young lion. These, these animals are natural enemies. But in the kingdom, that will be reversed. You see what it says? The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A young boy will lead them. 
In other words, in the kingdom, there's going to be no more predator and prey. All that's going to be reversed. All the hostility that's a part of this world is going to be gone. These vicious predators will no longer be a danger to anyone. It says even a young boy will be able to lead them without any danger. And the same idea is in verse 7, but it's taken a step further. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. In other words, bears and lions will no longer feed on the flesh of the cow and the ox. Instead, they will have the same diet of straw. They'll be vegetarians. No longer enemies. Their young will rest next to each other without even a hint of hostility. Now, I want you to look at verse 8. Because verse 8 gives us the key to what Isaiah is describing in verses 6 through 9. What's going on here? What does all this mean? Verse 8, the nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Now, this verse tells us what's going on in this description of these verses. Snakes and humans are natural enemies. That has been the case ever since when? The Garden of Eden, right? Genesis 3.15, as a part of the curse, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. In other words, humans and snakes will be enemies. But in verse 8, what you see is that's no longer the case. So what's going on here? Listen to me. The curse has been reversed. The curse passed down in the Garden of Eden, has been turned back. What Isaiah is describing in verses 6 through 9 is a return to paradise. A return to Eden, if you will. There will be peace between all of God's creatures. No more hostility, no more hatred, no more violence. We will live in a world with perfect peace and security. Look at verse 9. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain. In the Old Testament, God's holy mountain referred to Jerusalem, which is on a mountain. It's where the temple was located. So what it represented was the place where the, 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 the God and the people meet. But in the kingdom, what he's telling us here, all of the earth will be God's holy mountain. All of the earth will be a holy of holies. And there'll be no more wickedness or sin in all of the earth. Why? Look at verse 9 again, the end of the verse. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. What does that mean? Every single person will know God. Every single person will have a close, personal, intimate relationship with God. The process of sanctification that is at work in us now, the process of you and I, by the work of the Holy Spirit, becoming more like Jesus, on that day that process will be complete, will be fully transformed into the image of Christ. We will exist in our glorified state just like Adam and Eve before the fall 
we will live in a world that exists in perfect harmony with God. Why? Because there'll be no more sin. Listen, that's where our hope lies. In 2011, I went to Kenya in Africa to train pastors. I was gone for almost two weeks. Kenya, if you've never been, is hot, especially in June. Nowhere in Kenya has air conditioner. And I was preaching outside in the dirt in a full suit and tie. They required the pastors who preached to wear a full suit and tie, 112 degrees in the dirt. Now the good news is they gave us plenty of water. The bad news is they drank it hot. Bottles of water sitting out in the sun all day is what you were given to drink. And we had food to eat, but let's just say it wasn't like grandma made. Besides all of that, my wife was not there. And those people who know me know I don't like to be away from my wife for very long. But in spite of all that, I was fine. And none of that bothered me. Why? Because I knew I was going home soon. The trip home took about 30 hours. I remember getting off that last flight in Jackson, walking toward the escalator from the gate down to the bottom floor of the airport. I was almost home. I was back in the land of air conditioner and cold water and good food. And most of all, I knew when I got to the bottom of that escalator, my wife would be standing there. And she was. Listen, church, I, I know things are less than ideal now. The reality of sin and suffering is everywhere you look. And a government that abandons God only makes it worse by inviting his judgment. But one day our king is coming. The world we have known, the world corrupted by humanity's sin and rebellion against God, this world will be destroyed and replaced by a new world, a perfect world. No more hostility and hatred, only love. No more strife and division, only peace. No more grief and loss, only joy. No more want and need, only abundance. And most of all, when we get there, Jesus will be standing there to meet us. And that's where our hope lies. I know it's discouraging when your government has abandoned God and is facing his judgment. But even when government abandons God, believers have hope because Jesus is coming to reign. Our hope does not lie in the laws passed within the halls of Congress. 
Our hope does not lie in the executive orders made in the Oval Office. Our hope does not lie in the decisions handed down by the Supreme Court. Our hope does not lie in the security and safety safeguarded by America's military. If God forbid nuclear war would come and America would be blown off of the face of the earth, our hope remains steadfast and unchanged. Our hope does not depend on the survival of the United States of America. Our hope rests solely on the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will rule with all wisdom and all might and all the goodness of God. His reign will endure throughout all the innumerable ages of eternity. When the last kingdom of men has crumbled and been reduced to ashes by the breath of God, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will remain the eternal home of those who have believed. And that's where our hope lies. Pray with me.